Welcome to the Call Bible Study with men's expert and pastor Kenny Luck. You know, when we say that a man has a higher allegiance to anything, we usually mean that when push comes to shove, he will choose that over any competing priority or person. Think work, think hobbies, think about an important relationship, think family. You know, practically speaking, your strongest loyalty will cause everything and everyone else in your life to be or even feel second. It also means that other good options, situations, conveniences, or people might not get the attention or priority because they cannot compete with such a powerful attachment. Now in today's concluding session of the My Disciples series, this is exactly what Jesus asks of his followers, total allegiance. Allegiance that supersedes and comes before all other commitments. Now before we join Kenny in part five of this week's series, please take a moment and share this message. Now, let's join in live at Crossline Church in Laguna Hills, California for this week's worldwide live stream study. Good morning. If you have a Bible, you'll want to hold a couple spots, one in Exodus 20 and the other in Luke 14. We're going to finish up the series uh, called My Disciple. Now, I think you guys all know the name of someone who claims to be someone with their words, but their actions don't back up their words. We call them a hypocrite, right? And no one wants to be labeled a hypocrite. And in the Bible, when you, when you look at Jesus and his followers, uh, there is this theme of, hey, if you claim to be my disciple, then here are some defining qualities of what is a disciple. And that's what we've been covering uh, for the last five weeks. Now, the reason why this is relevant is because there are roughly 600 to 700 million men on planet Earth that claim an affiliation with Jesus. Now, if those six to 700 million men who claim an affiliation with Jesus were actually living like disciples, do you think the world would be a little different? You think evil would stand a chance against an army of spirit-empowered men, six to seven hundred million in the small spaces, in little villages, in communities, in households, in families, in major metro urban cities, if men in the body of Christ were activated, spirit-empowered disciples living out their identity in Christ? You see, it's easy to, to have the God talk. It's easy to carry a Bible. It's easy to attend church, but only Jesus can define who is a real follower and a real friend and a real disciple. And so we've been looking at how he defines it, not how we define it, because if you're like me, I kind of swallow the impression. I believe the appearances. I'm quick to go, oh, well, you know, that guy looks like, you know, he's here at church and maybe he's even joining this Bible study and you know, he, he seems to have the talk and he says, praise the Lord and hallelujah and, and amen and all of those things. I'm, I'm the kind of person that would go, oh yeah, I'm putting two and two together. I see these outward actions and behaviors, but I don't know who he is in private. And that's true of you. It's true of me. I could be up here uh, preaching God's word and you see me in this context, but you don't see me in my home context. You don't see me in my private context. You can't see the real me, the one that's operating behind these eyeballs in my head. And so we're letting Jesus define 
what it means to be a disciple. And in part one, we learn that a disciple is obedient to his word. Let's say that together. Obedient to his word. Right, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then we looked at how when God's word comes, a disciple hears, accepts, and produces a crop. Let's say that together. Hears, accepts, and produces a crop. That's right. And then we learned in part two that a disciple of Jesus loves people really well. Why? Because they've been loved really well by God. In fact, he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples for sure. If, there's the condition, you have love one for another. So a disciple is obedient to the word of Christ. A disciple loves others well. Do you know that the people in your lives, everyone connected to you, something positive should be happening to them because you are a disciple of Jesus. Because he loves you so well, you should be loving others well. That's right. So that's the second marker of a disciple. The third marker of a disciple is that a disciple abides in Christ and bears fruit. Let's say that together abides in Christ and bears fruit, right? Jesus said, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And we talked about how the the true fruit, the best fruit that, that we can bear, that we get from abiding in Christ, okay? Staying connected, remaining in Christ is we receive in that from that abiding in him, his character and his conduct. We actually receive the character of Christ inside. We change. Our character becomes like him, and character is expressed in conduct. And it looks like the fruit of the Spirit. We love better. We have more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more gentleness, more faithfulness, more self-control. We bear the fruit, the character, and the conduct of Christ. And then we learn that, that a disciple pays a price to win the prize. A disciple sacrifices. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the lifestyle of a disciple is that we say no to self to say yes to Jesus. That's how we live. That's our lifestyle. We come into a situation, our yeses and our noes are defined by our relationship with God. And so in, in this final Final session, we're going to talk about how a disciple puts Jesus first. Let's say that together. Puts Jesus first. Right. In, in man culture, you might, you might say, man, that guy has a higher allegiance to whatever. Fill in the blank. To the Patriots. You know, or <laughs> to the Dodgers. Or to golf. Or you know, what it means is, is that that has his highest priority. Okay, so he's got an allegiance to that. And everyone and everything in his life either is or feels second. Okay, just the way it is. He has a higher allegiance to that. And that means that everyone and everything kind of plays second fiddle to his highest allegiance. Now, that's true of a disciple as well. In your life, if Jesus has your highest allegiance... Everyone and everything in your life will know that they are second to that higher allegiance uh, to, to Jesus. And so we're going to do what we've done in the, uh, in the past sessions. We're going to see God's heart, all right? And then we're going to look at Jesus 
and have him define what being a disciple is, and then we're going to apply it uh, to our lives. In Exodus chapter 20, when God begins to speak to Moses about how a covenant relationship works with him, he says this. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth or beneath uh, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Let's finish it together. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, when you're in a relationship with God, the Bible uh, categorizes that as something different than maybe some of your other connections. The Bible calls it a covenant relationship. Let's say that together. A covenant relationship, right. It's a faithful relationship marked by growth and intimacy and reciprocity. Right? Now, the best analogy that I can, I can share with you that illustrates a covenant relationship that is marked by faithfulness and growth and intimacy and an exchange of reciprocity is marriage. That's why when I marry people, there's an exchange of vows. Okay? It's before God and before people. Okay? This is going to be a forever relationship. It's going to be marked by faithfulness. It's going to be marked by growth. It's going to be marked by reciprocity where there's going to be loving one another and serving one another and forgiving one another and the ups and downs of life. And in the ups and downs of life, as there's reciprocity, there's intimacy. And that intimacy and that oneness is to be guarded above all things. That's why we put one of these on. That's why we say... Uh, I will or I do on different levels of commitment. We make commitments in advance because the relationship has our highest allegiance, okay? That's, why, that's what God is, is trying to say here as he, as he says to Moses, okay, this is how this works. First commandment, all right, is there's no one before me. No one. Don't even try to make things that might take my place. I am number one. You're going to put me first. We have a covenant relationship of faithfulness and trust. Now, from that moment where God describes, this is how relationship with me works. There's, there's one God. I'm him. Everything else is false. You're committed to me. Put me first. Israel struggled. God's people struggled. We struggle in maintaining that highest allegiance to God alone. Can I get a witness? Okay, so that's why prophets, men of God, would be sent to remind Israel, hey, look, you made a commitment. God made a commitment to you. He's remembering you. Are you remembering him? And you'll see in the Old Testament, uh, certainly, there's this theme of don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. Remember the Lord. You're going to enter a land and you're going to live in houses you didn't build and eat grapes off vines you didn't plant and there's going to be blessings and so forth and there's going to be this attack on this covenant relationship with God. Don't forget the Lord. And so I, I put in your notes Isaiah 44, 6, which is just the words of a man of God to the people of God. All right, let's read that together. This is what the Lord says. 
Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Right? So there is always a temptation to replace God and this covenant relationship with something else. In fact, we might even call it spiritual warfare. That that's what Satan's goal was, was to infect and pollute and divide Israel from God and one another. And if, if they were successful in dividing or fragmenting or diluting that covenant relationship with God, where they stopped putting him first, they would start devouring one another. Things would not start uh, going well for God's people. And so what we want to see as we look at this issue of putting God first and being a true disciple are a couple of things that flow out of the heart of God from the very beginning. Number one, he does not allow competition relationally. God does not allow competition relationally. Now, for those of you who have been married, you've taken vows, imagine I'm, I'm, I'm marrying you and I, and I say, Bob, do you take Betty and do you promise most of the time, all right, to cherish her? You know, I mean, it, it, you don't say those things because the nature of that relationship and the vow of that commitment, it's like, no, there's, there's going to be no competition. That's why, that's why we put on the ring that's a symbol of oneness. There's no beginning and there's no end. It's perfect, right? We're one. Right? So God, similarly, in a covenant relationship, does not allow competition. It doesn't even make sense that there would be competition. You know, I don't, I don't say, hey, Bob, you know, you're going to be committed. I charge you in the name of Jesus to be committed to Betty. And, you know, you can, you can be unfaithful sometimes. But most of the time, you should be really committed to her. Okay, that bride would be like, hey, forget this. You know, I'm not marrying that guy. And in the Bible, you have to understand that your covenant relationship with God, you know, that's the, that's the texture of it. It's like he cannot tolerate anyone defiling or adulterating the relationship with him. That's how he feels. It's like that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't even compute for God because he's so committed to you, right? Secondly, God does not allow dilution. God does not allow competition relationally. God does not allow dilution culturally. You see, when you read the Bible, you see God's people having spiritual affairs on God. How do they do it? They adopt gods from the culture. They stop being a people of covenant and they start acting like people of culture. And when they start acting like people of culture, they adopt their ways to be, their ways to believe, and their ways to behave. Do you think the spiritual battle is any different today? It's not. There are ways to be and believe and behave that are out there in culture that will attack your covenant relationship with God. God does not allow dilution. That's why when Jesus talks to the disciples, he says, if you are of the world, cosmos, culture, that system of beliefs that is godless. If you are of the world, I would have told you. But as it is, I have chosen you. What? Out of the world. That's why you might you know, see a bumper sticker or two that says, not of this world, you know, 
It's someone saying, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. God has chosen me out of the world, out of culture, out of a godless way to be, believe, and behave because I'm a follower of Jesus. So God does not allow competition relationally. doesn't even compute. God does not allow dilution culturally. That's false gods. That's idolatry. Third, God does not allow reservation mentally. And again, I'm going to go back to my, my, my marriage analogy where if I have two people before me, I'm basically saying, I'm giving you a chance here as we make these vows for you to express at any time mental reservation entering this covenant relationship. In fact, some marriages say, if there's anybody here, you know, is there any hesitation? Is there any reservation? You know, because it just doesn't compute in a covenant relationship, especially when that relationship uh, is with God. And so there's, there's the context biblically. And now into that context, let's hear the words of Jesus in this fifth dynamic, which calls for you to really put God first in your life. Let's read Luke 14, verses 25 and 26. Ready? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That is what we call a difficult saying of Jesus. Because in the same book, I read in God's word where I'm supposed to love my wife. Way Christ loves the church. Well, Jesus is saying, you know, unless I hate father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hate's a strong word, wouldn't you agree? Now, the word hate is used in this context not to, not to communicate. You have to be aggressive and uh, spiteful and toward all these other relationships. Hating in this context, means it communicated the distance between Jesus and his priority in my life and everyone and everything else. Now, other statements by Jesus reflect how there is a different level of priority. Say different level of priority. Different level of priority. There's a different level of priority when it comes to your relationship with God and everyone and everything else. Okay, Jesus would say things like this in Matthew 6, 24. Let's read that together. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, there is a quality of commitment in relationships. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Either if you say you're committed to, to one person, you can't take that same high level of commitment and dilute it and say that you love this other person. It's like same in, in, in marriage. I can't say, oh, Chrissy, I love you so much. But I also love this other lady part of the time too. Okay? That wouldn't work. That would, that would that'd be bad. <laughs> I would, something would happen. And she's promised something would happen if that ever happened. Um, but you understand the picture. Jesus, it's, in, it's, it's strong language, right? Hate. Right? You're going to love the one or you're going to hate the other. You see how Jesus is setting up the relationship? There's me, and then there's everyone and everything else in your life. And I, I want to be put first. When Jesus was re-recruiting, 
the disciple that denied him. Listen to this language. Let's read John 21, 15 together. Ready? Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Judea, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. What was Jesus asking for? Commitment. And it was a different level of commitment. He said, do you love me more than these? Now, we don't know what the these are, but there's only a couple of options, okay? The, all the disciples were having breakfast together with Jesus, and Jesus said, hey, let's go take a walk. I made you breakfast, let's go take a walk. And maybe the disciples were back there, you know, stuffing their face full of the fish that Jesus cooked breakfast for them. <laughs> and he said, hey, Peter, you love me more than these? You love me more than these guys? Or it could be the stinky fish that Jesus just said, hey, why don't you guys throw the net on the other side? You know, and they pull in a big haul of fish and, and, and Peter realizes, oh my gosh, that's Jesus. And he jumps in with his clothes on and he swims to shore. He's so excited to see Jesus. But it could be, you know, Jesus, he left Jesus to go back to his old profession, to his old life. But regardless of what do you love me more than these really means, Jesus is asking for separation. He's saying, do you love me more than these? And man, Peter comes out with it. And you know, he doesn't ask him just one time. How many times does he ask him? Three times. How many times did he deny him? Three. Do you love me more than these? Do you really love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Take care of my sheep. Do you really love, Lord, you know, it got so, it got painful for Peter. Lord, you know that I love you. Why? Because it's a covenant. It's a covenant. And God God wants commitment. Lastly, uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, there's, there's, there's disciples, okay? There's quote-unquote disciples. And, and a disciple uh, gets challenged to follow Jesus. And, and, and this, is, this is, let's roll the film on that one. Let's read Matthew 8, 21 and 22. Ready? Another disciple said to him, first, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Whoa. Now, when he said, let me bury my father, it wasn't like, I have to go get a shovel right now. He's dead. I have to bury him. Then I'll come back at three o'clock and then I'll start following him. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the process of having an aging father. And he's like, you know what? It's going to be a little bit of time. I got to take care of him. There's some, thing, some things I have to do, you know, to kind of take care of the father. And here he is. He's consistent. He's saying, you know what? Follow me. Now, I'm, there's a separation, and I'm, yes, I'm demanding uh, another level of priority. Uh, let the dead bury their dead. Now, now let's, let's make sense of this. Because if you're like me, and you read these words of Jesus where he says, hate your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot meet my disciple. There has to be... Uh, a reframing of that that makes sense because those that's a if you take it literally and you just go huh how does that work all right um, here's what you need to know when I put God first write this down others are blessed when I put God first others are best you know what my kids greatest comfort was growing up is that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was dad's first priority. 
If you want to give your children and grandchildren comfort and confidence, be totally loyal and give your highest allegiance to Jesus Christ. Because in having that total loyalty, it doesn't matter, kids, friends, neighbors, co-workers, whoever the other people are in your life, give your total allegiance to Jesus because it gives them a comfort and confidence because then they know, oh my goodness, this person knows they've come from God, that they are made for God and they're going back to God and they're accountable to God. That's good for me, okay? My wife's greatest comfort and confidence in the dating relationship 30 years ago was that Kenny loved Jesus first, and she knew it. She knew that I would follow him. She knew that I would go wherever he told me to go. She knew that I was gonna, I was gonna believe his word, that I was gonna hold to his teaching. She knew that I was gonna love other people the way Christ has loved me. She knew that I would pay the price to win the prize of relationship and to be a man of God. And in knowing that, she said, you know what? There's a lot of dudes to pick from at this college, but I pick you. And I know what I'm getting into, and I'm glad that you are the way you are. Right? That's my wife's greatest comments. Why do they know that? Why is, why is the sanctity and security of others, why does that come about when a man you know, is hating the others to put Jesus first? Because they know that my commitment and my character and conduct toward them flows from my commitment to him. So when Jesus says, you know, unless you hate father and mother, wife and children, but yes, even your own life, such a person cannot mean by a disciple, he's not cursing you. He's what? He's blessing you. He's blessing you and he's blessing other people. That's when hating becomes a blessing. It's the, it only makes sense in the context of Jesus. Amen? That's the only place where it makes sense. Now, how does this, how do we contextualize this in terms of our relationship with him? Well, in the Bible, it talks about how when Jesus put God first, we were blessed. In Romans chapter 5, verses 17 and 19, it says this, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, who didn't put God first in the first garden, how much more will those who receive God's, what? Abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Let's finish it together. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. Just like when I put God first, others are blessed. When Jesus put God first in the Garden of Gethsemane, I was blessed. He put God first. It was going to be uncomfortable, but he put God first. And when he put God first, my salvation and my redemption and my justification was transacted by him putting God first in his life. So when I put God first, others are blessed. 
what's that, that's, that's number one. That's just the promise that comes with putting God first. Then secondly, what's my model? What's my example? Well, when Jesus put God first, I was blessed. So there's our example. So now let's look how with total allegiance to Jesus, uh, things happen in your other relationships. The first thing that happens with total allegiance to Jesus is I assure others. Write that down. I assure others. It doesn't matter if you're married or single or you just have friends or you have, but when I, my total allegiance to Jesus is there, there, there is a, a, a trust and a freedom that takes place in others where they're not living their lives around me and being what psychologists would call codependent with me. They're not a disciple of my moods or my behaviors or my addictions or whatever's going on with me. They're actually free to not have their identity rooted around me, but have become who God made them to be. Let's read Psalm 128, verses three and four together. Ready? Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who... Wow. You put God first, you fear the Lord first in your life, you assure other people. When other people are secure around you versus insecure and anxious over... What kind of choice is he going to make? Is he going to be mad at me? Is he going to do something to harm their relationship? If they know that God is on the job. Man, that, that sets them free from the anxiety of worrying about you. And it frees them up to be all that God created them to be in him. People blossom around men who they know who fear the Lord. And they put God first. Maximum trust. Maximum freedom. All right, think about the people in your life. What's the greatest comfort and confidence that you can give them? Love Jesus. Love Jesus. They know they can count on some things from you when they know that you love Jesus more than anything. You're committed to Jesus more than anything. All right, so with total allegiance, I assure others. With total allegiance to Jesus, I comfort others. Look at what it says here in Proverbs 14, verses 26 and 27. Let's, let's read that together. Ready? Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. You know what a refuge is, right? A refuge is when there's the potential for harm or you need protection and safety, you run to a refuge, and you're going to be safe. There, you know you're gonna be safe. You're gonna be safe from the weather outside. You're gonna be safe from the forces trying to get you. You're gonna, you're gonna have a safe harbor. Now, when you fear the Lord, you become like a secure fortress. And the people in your life run into you. They run to you. They run towards you. Why? Because they know that that's a safe harbor. That's a place of safety. That's a place of protection. That's a place of provision. All right? So when I put God first, truly, when there's a separation between Jesus and everyone and everything else, others are blessed. 
They're assured on the inside. They're comforted. Look what it says in, in Proverbs 19.23. Let's read that together. Fear of the Lord leads to life, bringing security and protection from harm. Now, we run to the Lord because he's our refuge. He's our rock. He's our anchor. And when we run to the Lord and he's first, and we have this growing, faithful, reciprocal bond and covenant together, that comes from him onto me. He is my covering. Everybody say, he is my covering. He is my covering. And then I gain strength and safety and security from him. I develop and I'm free to become the man he created me to be. And then it starts going downhill to the people in my life. And now I'm free and I'm secure and I'm, I'm in the Lord. He's my fortress. Then I become a secure fortress, a trustworthy place to go, a place to find refuge, a place of safety, a place of provision in the lives of others. And it's comforting. Question. Are you providing that covering for the people who are connected to you? Through your relationship with Jesus and how he is your anchor, he is first in your life, you have a growing covenant, reciprocal, faithful, intimate relationship with him. When they come to you, do they feel his covering on you and then your covering on them? Where you are like a refuge to people. Third, after I assure others, I comfort others, I serve others. I serve others. When I put Jesus first, automatically I serve others. This is a blessing to them. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about how he lives for an audience of one, but it's because he lives for an audience of one that he serves everybody. Let's read 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Ready? Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. You see the new mission? I don't care what you think about me because I put Jesus first. All right? I'm not a man pleaser. I'm a God pleaser. Let's say that together. I'm not a man pleaser. I'm a God pleaser. You know what? His opinion matters more to me than you. But because I'm not a man pleaser and I'm a God pleaser and I'm secure in this covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I am now free. Because I don't care, now I'm going to break the rules to serve you when compassion requires it and when God's word tells me to do it. Does that make sense? That's what allows me to stop and pull over my car go on missions trips, take time off of work, do certain things that my feelings don't want me to do, you know, and it's all because I live for an audience of one, but when I live for an audience of one, I'm the servant of many. Does that make sense? Why? Because I know I'm made by God, I'm made for God, I'm going to God, all right? So I assure others when my highest allegiance is to Jesus all right? I comfort others when my highest allegiance is Jesus, and then I serve others when my highest allegiance is, and I'm just looking around in this room, and I'm looking at men who know Jesus, and they really serve others well. 
right? That's a measure if you're a disciple. When they're around you, when other people are around you, are they comforted? Are they confident? Do they know that you have a servant's heart? Not because they deserve it necessarily all the time, because the people in my life don't deserve service all of the time, amen? But I do it anyway. Why? Because Jesus served me. He's my highest allegiance. Though I belong to no man and don't care what you think, and I'm gonna be God's man, I'm a slave to everyone. What does everyone mean? Everyone. Doesn't matter what color their skin is. Doesn't matter what country they're from. Doesn't matter where they live. Doesn't matter their gender. Doesn't matter what they did, done in the past. Though you're a slave to no man, you're a, you're a slave to every man, all right? Fourth, I sacrifice for others. When Jesus is first, and we talked about this in part four, about sacrifice, we sacrifice for others. Um, in fact, it's a way of life where we are, we are blessing others and we are uh, giving ourselves up to take up the blessing of serving other people. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is talking about this lifestyle of the person who is a disciple of Jesus. And he says this, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are, let's finish it together, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Only makes sense in the context of Jesus Christ. Death is at work in me. I, I, I'm, I'm crucifying myself. I'm saying no to myself to say yes to God and other people. That's the lifestyle of the Christian. We talked about that in part four. Would people be able to write that kind of that headline over your life? Oh, yeah. Pete says no to himself all the time to say yes and God and people. Chip says no to himself to say yes and God and people. Andrew says no to himself all the time to say yes to God and people. Tim says no to himself all the time to say yes to God and people. Want to know why that's carrying around in your body the death of Jesus? Because Jesus said no to himself to say yes to torture for you. And because we're in Christ, we make that same decision to die to ourselves to bring life to other people. The spirit of Christ lives in you. And so you'll be assuring other people because Jesus is first and he's alive and active in your life. You'll be comforting other people because Jesus is alive and active in your life. You'll be serving other people because you're alive, Jesus is alive and active in your life. And you'll be sacrificing for other people as a way of life because Jesus is alive and active in you. So the best thing that I can do for others in my life, write this down, is give total allegiance to Jesus. Now when Jesus says, all right, unless you hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Does it make sense now from the word of God? Because when I put God first, others are blessed. What's my example? Because Jesus put me first and I am blessed. He showed us the way. Now, this idea of Jesus's supremacy, everybody say supremacy, supremacy. When something is supreme and it has supremacy, isn't there a separation between the thing that is supreme and everything else that's competing against it? Right? Listen to 
Paul describe to the Colossians who Jesus is and the position it puts Jesus in in the life of the believer. The Son, Paul says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created in in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Let's finish it together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the... He's first. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the beginning. He says he's the first. God says he's first. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the church. He's before all things. Jesus is preeminent and Jesus is supreme. He's all those things and the Bible tells us he's all those things. Why? There's a connective preposition. So that. You should circle that in your Bible. So that. There is the nature of God. There's Jesus. He's all these things. So that, and then it says, in everything he might have the supremacy. Does Jesus have supremacy in your life? Do people know that Jesus is supreme in all areas of your life? See, because I know that you can't have Jesus first in everything all at once right at the beginning, but are you working toward giving Jesus supremacy in every area of your life? in your relational life, in your emotional life, in your financial life? Does Jesus have supremacy? And would we be able, by the evidence, to go, yeah, this man is in a covenant relationship with God. He hates father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, even his own life, because Jesus is first. There's so much separation between everyone and everything else in this man's life. Jesus is first. And I can see that, because there's a growing, faithful, trust-filled relationships that's filled with reciprocity between this man and Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in 1 Peter 3.15. It's actually a command. Let's read it together. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. The word sanctify means to set apart. Set apart Christ as what? As Lord. That means he's master. He's master and commander. He's master and commander and captain. He is Lord. He is the center of my life. He runs my life. He he dominates my thinking. He dominates my, my considerations. He influences everything. I don't make a move without first thinking of him and what he wants and what would show love for him. I don't spend a dollar. I don't invest energy. I want every area of my life to count for him. Why? Because he has supremacy. And I sanctify him. I set him apart from everyone and everything else. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. And then when people ask, man, why do you do what you do? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you go where you go? 
Why do you write checks the way you write checks? It's because Jesus is Lord of my life. Because I have Christ in my life and I love him. He's number one. He's number one. Jesus is number one. Can you say that with confidence? Can we say it together? Jesus is number one. Yeah, there, it's not even a, a, a close second. And people should know that about you. And when they ask, why do you do what you do? Why do you get up at, at oh dark 30 and drive to a little church in the, well, not such a little church, but uh, when you drive to church in Laguna Hills, because Jesus is number one, man. He loves me. He died for me. He put me first. He put me first when he didn't have to in that garden. He said, yet not my will be done, but your will be done. So I'm putting him first. And when I put him first, you want me to put him first because I'm all about doing everything that shows love for him and people. So it's good for you that I put him first. So the question on your note says, so is he? So is Jesus first? We're gonna create some space right now because there are some of you, you may have wandered, but you're not lost. And God is saying, you need to put my son first in your life. And that goes for people who are seekers and that goes for people who know Christ but who have wandered, and Jesus is saying to you, like he said to Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than having control in your relationships? Do you love me more than your anger? Do you love me more than your gambling? Do you love me more than your addiction? Do you love me more than just fill in the blank? And you know the thing that is taking Jesus' place, because when you replace Jesus with something else, your relationships begin to suffer, either with God or with people, okay? So let's bow our heads and let's take a second and let's put Jesus first. Father, we read your word and your word says to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. That's what we wanna do right now. We wanna give you first place. And there are some men listening to my voice. They've never done it, never once. They've never said, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my forgiver. You are my redeemer. And I want a relationship with you. So if you're listening to the sound of my voice and you would like to put Jesus first and be blessed by him with your sins being forgiven, having a home in heaven and knowing your true purpose for living, just say, Jesus, today I make you my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for saving me by dying on the cross and erasing my sin so that I could be clean before God. Thank you for being my Lord, the one who is in charge, the one who loves me, the one who knows what's best, the one I can submit every area of my life to. Come into my life, Jesus, and make me the person you want me to be. And then there's some of you who you know Christ is Lord, but you haven't sanctified him as Lord in your life right now. He's second. Or there's an area of your life where he isn't first, clearly. And so you might want to say to Jesus, Jesus, today I'm putting a stake in the ground. And I am putting you back on the throne of my life in this area and in my life. You are the one who put me first so that I could go to heaven and have my sins forgiven. I'm putting you first in everything. Help me to be 
your disciple. Help me to hold to your teaching. Help me to love others well. Help me to abide in you and produce fruit. Help me to say no to myself and to say yes to you and others. And then help me to be totally loyal to you. In Jesus' name we pray and God's men said, amen.